I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash inner academy. Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey folks, welcome to the Real Change Anthology. My name is Lily Cushman, and I'm the producer for the Meta Hour podcast. In celebration of the paperback book release of Real Change in November of 2021, we've created an anthology of interviews to explore some themes from the book. These interviews originally aired from 2019 to 2020 with Sharon speaking to various folks about the intersection of mindfulness, loving-kindness practice, and social action. We're delighted to reissue these conversations to you now as a new collection of weekly episodes organized in the following themes. Agency in action, grief to resilience, activism as art, anger to courage, the interconnected world, and burnout to balance. For episode three of the anthology, we're exploring the theme, Art as Activism. This episode features interview clips from Carla Goldstein, 
Gary Gack, Joelle Leon, Sarah Jones, Sarah Rule, and Young Pueblo. Our first clip is from episode 143 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sarah Jones. It originally aired December 14th of 2020. Sarah is a Tony Award-winning performer, writer, comedian, and activist. Called a master of genre by the New York Times, Sarah is known for her multi-character, one-person shows, including Broadway hit Bridge and Tunnel and the critically acclaimed show Sell By Date. In this clip, Sharon and Sarah discuss the role that art plays in our culture to break down barriers and inspire new ways of thinking. So thank you for being a big part of the book Real Change, my most recent book. And it was this moment in time, which I've I've often talked about, where I was actually talking to Bell Hooks, who's um, very, very, very exacting in her use of language. And she told me she didn't like the term social action, because it made her think that some people would believe that only meant marching or protesting in some overt way. And she looked at me and she said, what about art? You know, what about the art, which we count on actually to dissolve boundaries or show us a vision of what could be possible or just shake us up, you know, out of complacency. And and so that became an important part of my thinking in, in writing the book. Like, what about art? And look at how I count on art and look at how we count on art. And so you were a fabulous contributor to that. And clearly there's a relationship between art and creativity and, and activism. I feel, first of all, it was such a profound like it was that mix of, I was so honored and I was so excited. You know, it was like a giddy honors. I don't know if that's a real thing, but I just was like, ooh, I think I squealed. And, oh, Sharon wants me to, you know, talk about art in her book. I just couldn't believe it. And I think that combination of giddiness and playfulness and joy in me and the desire that everyone should have access to that. And yeah. You know, when we don't have a world that inspires and allows the flourishing of all of its people, something is terribly, I I mean, even, you know, the binaries of like what's wrong and what's bad and what's evil and all of that. I just think there's a basic common sense that all little kids have that gets kind of knocked out of us by all the hierarchies and the teachings about who is important and who isn't and who deserves love and who deserves care and safety and good schools and safe neighborhoods in which to play and who doesn't that all for me is, you know, kind of entangled. Mm -hmm. And as a very little person, I remember being able to feel a sense of hope when I watched Lily Tomlin or when I saw I think it was Whoopi Goldberg do her, you know, one person show where she looked more like me than most people on TV at that time. And I could identify with her and her taking up space felt powerful and important. And she moved me and I laughed. And, you know, uh, John Leguizamo was another person for me, like hearing Spanish spoken and hearing accents. And, you know, all of this was about claiming space 
and just their being on TV was activism. Mm-hmm. And I, so I think I got it very early on that I wanted to have access to more joy and play and being centered instead of marginalized. And I wanted that for everybody. And so that's where I think the art and activism for me were almost synonymous. If you're going to be effective in your activism, you better move people. And if you Mm -hmm. want to move people, often creativity, you know, get them singing. I think of, you know, Mahalia Jackson or Bob Marley. These are people who's were probably being played in many racist living rooms. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And because they're, Voices, you know, went straight to people's hearts. I don't know. Did people vote differently? Did people get up, stand up, even though they were, you know, Republican? I don't know. But I, I, I like to believe that that's just as much as, in fact, far more so. You just said it, you know, mo- far more than any political system. This, you know, kind of pat sounding notion of hearts and minds. The way people are moved is through their souls and through art and through I think connection that defies some of the conventional notions of who's on what side. Well, another way of, of saying not being marginalized or not being marginalized is saying belonging that I belong, you know, and you belong. Yeah. You know, that you have a home, I have a home actually. And we don't find one another, I think through, well, certainly we don't find one another conceptually, you know, through, discourse we we find one another by having some kind of glimpse of someone else's vulnerability or or longing or you know infatuation or you know it's just some relationship that we can honor because i think oh yeah i have that kind of too you know it it looks a little different in my life but i I can resonate with this i have an idea about this And, and we do count on even very popular culture we count on media um, we count on social media to deliver that. It doesn't always by any means, but we kind of need that actually. Mm, absolutely. And in a time like this, you know, I was thinking about, like you said, belonging. Oh, it's so delicious because it, it it's everything that wait, art is an invitation. Mm-hmm. Even when, even when it's a pro- provocative or, you know, kind of what some people might call controversial, it's an in- invitation to engage on a human level with, you know, that kind of the space between our intellect, because, you, you know, discourse also helps. Mm-hmm. We, we need, you know, we need the kind of intellectual exercise. I've, I mean, today I think is uh, either, I think it's James Baldwin's birthday. I'm not positive. And if I, if I did get that right, you can thank social media. But I think of, you know, public intellectuals who are also artists, who are also spiritual teachers. I mean, these are my favorite people. I think yeah. of you. Yeah. I think of, you know, there are so many people who are living and experimenting in a very human public way at that intersection of art and activism and heart space and intellectual space. They're all really, I think of them, you know, knitted together. And sometimes social media does offer that. I love that you're on there. It it almost, you know, it reminds me, oh, right. We have these ideas and this is a medium that exists. And can we, you know, I mean, especially in a pandemic, my goodness, sometimes I, I feel you post something and I feel more connected and, you know, um, able to, cre- to create something in the moment and hopefully vice versa. 
This next clip is from episode 130 of the Meta Hour, featuring Joelle Leone. It originally aired August 24th of 2020. Joelle is a performer, author, and storyteller who writes and tells stories for Black people. Born and raised in the Bronx, Joelle specializes in moderating and leading conversations surrounding race, masculinity, mental health, creativity, and the performing arts, all with love at the center of his work and purpose. He's the author of Book About Things I Will Tell My Daughter and God Wears Do-Rags Too. In this clip, Joelle and Sharon talk about the revolutionary power of poetry to change people's minds and hearts. Here's the clip. I had just finished reading Freedom Dreams by um, Dr. Robin D.G. Kelly, and essentially he's talking about the Black imagination and the ability of the Black imagination to reimagine the future. And he opens the book and talks about poetry as a form of social protest and really viewing social justice and the work of social justice through the lens of poetry and that how poetry is so free form and so open. If we can view movements in that way, the amount of work we'd be able to do and accomplish is, is, is staggering. And so I spent a lot of time really just not being sure if my art meant something to the revolution and to the work. And even when I think of the Nikki Giovannis and, and the Sonia Sanchez's and, you know, the Amiri Barakas, these individuals that, that I think really own the space for revolutionary art, you know, Audrey Lord. It's hard for, I think, ourselves in the moment to see if we are doing the work of our ancestors, you know, like Zora Neale Hurston's and, and the Langston Hughes, right, uh, of the world. And mm-hmm. But I think if, taking it away from that, and as an aside, it's the things that have been most meaningful to me that have encouraged me to be more active in the community, to be more active in my process, has come from artists, has come from art, whether it be from spoken word artists, hip hop artists, theater, art, you know, and just poetry, you know, like it's consistently inspired me to look and reach for different ways of communicating. You know, I, Chuck D, him and Tupac said similar things about this. And Chuck D said, like, I'm not Malcolm X, but I hope to inspire the next mind that will be. Mm. You know, and Tupac said something similar about, you know, I might not change the world, but I'm going to inspire the next person to do so. And uh, for me, that's something I've always tried to own. Like, I don't know who I am right now in this moment besides a black father, black man, uh, brother, whomever, an artist who's just trying to trying to give everyone the space to feel, to sift, to be with, and to also deconstruct the, the ways that we view not just art, but society and how art can be a catalyst for that. Yeah, I think I, I wrote a piece recently called Poetry Will Save the World because I believe it. And I think the more I can believe it in that, I think the more it can potentially become true. And so that's kind of my hope. You know, we're all poems. I say that a lot, I think, sometimes on Twitter or um, just like in, in verse. You know, I, I think every single one of us is a poem. I think we all have a poem in us. And the more we can be less judgmental about the, how that poem manifests itself in the world, I think the better we will be and the better art we'll be able to make. Granted, you know, I think better is subjective. But the idea that the more we're just allowing ourselves to be liberated and detached from the way we're supposed to show up, supposed to, quote unquote, mm-hmm. show up the world, the more, the, the better we will be as a society, I think. And I think art can be the driving force for that. <laughs> 
I totally agree. I think art is, for many of us, it's the greatest driving force of that. And I'll tell you another story that's in the book. Or yes. I was at Emory University in the audience when the Dalai Lama and Alice Walker and Richard Gere were on this panel about art and creativity. The talk was sponsored by the art department. And the first question was a question I'm asked all the time, actually, about different things. But basically, it was, do you think great, great art has to come from great suffering? Or can it come from another place? And Alice Walker said some really interesting things about believing that when she was younger, but now yeah. felt that the happier she got, the better her poetry was getting. Yeah. And Richard Gere mm-hmm. talked about being an angry young man. And then the Dalai Lama was so cute, as he often is. He said, basically, he didn't quite understand the question because it made no sense to him. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, people are always dragging me places and say, look at this, look at this building, look at this yeah. painting. You know, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? And he said in Tibet, we believe the the worth or the merit of a piece of art depends on what happens internally to the creator as they are making it. So if the artist becomes kinder, more enlightened, more aware, that's considered great art. And I thought that's different. You know? yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I'm so glad we're recording so I can just keep listening to all these things. So I can, <laughs> so I can write them down. Like it's Sharon, it's, there's like a tradition in like the black community where they tell you to be careful about the kind of art you bring home. And maybe this is also similar in other communities, but like if someone's making a thing, like if someone's painted you a picture or sculpted something, to be aware of the energy of whomever made that thing, like what space they were in when they were creating. Mm-hmm. Because like you don't want to bring bad spurs into your household, like things of that nature. And so mm-hmm. and the Dalai Lama say that for me also, speaks to I think and like just thinking specifically for myself where I am as an artist and knowing that I'm making some of the best art of my life and like I'm in the most secure place I've ever been mm-hmm. you know um financially spiritually mentally and I think part of that is because I'm in a place where I get to hold space for all of the things you know mm-hmm. like the grief the trauma the joy the the loss the, the accomplishments it, it's all here and I'm here for it all and so my art, I think, is reflective of that now, as opposed to maybe, I think when we're younger, we try to hide certain parts and we only put out the shiny things or mm-hmm. my heart is broken. And so like, it's writing for me when my heart was broken was cathartic, performing, like being on stage, whether it be emceeing or doing spoken word, theater, whatever. If I was going through something that was troubling at home or at school or in the workplace or in a relationship, then being on stage definitely was very like therapeutic for me. But I don't necessarily know if I was making the best art at that time, as opposed to now, where A, it is cathartic, but it's also it's coming from a place of joy. Mm-hmm. You know, even in the in in the depths of sadness, there's still this piece of joy. Like I'm 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 having opportunity to share my gift, right? And and my ability, right? Like because it, it I think it goes hand in hand with the love that you talked about in Dan in real life, again, which is such a phenomenal movie. I'm so glad you brought that movie because I feel like yeah, thank you. But you know, like art, art has been like I've been able to make art from a happy place, and it feels really good. This next clip is from episode 100 of the Meta Hour, featuring Sarah Rule. It originally aired June 10th of 2019. Sarah is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize 
and her plays include In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play, The Clean House, and most recently Stage Kiss and Dear Elizabeth. She's currently on the faculty of the Yale School of Drama and has been the recipient of a MacArthur Fellowship, the Helen Merrill Emerging Playwrights Award, and the Whiting Writers Award. In this clip, Sarah discusses the transformational effects of playwriting and how it can be a vehicle for cultural change. When I think about social movement, social justice, you know, change, um, especially because I'm asked so much about it these days, you know, like how can your inner work uh, make a difference mm-hmm. in the world? And uh, so many times we identify social change uh, with like protesting or marching or picketing. And I think of art. It's the first thing I think of mm-hmm. as forming a new boundary or a new image of what might be possible mm. or or describing what is in a way that maybe not everyone has the courage to do. Mm. And, um, so I really see it as a revolutionary form, mm-hmm. whatever. Yes. And I, I mean, I, I feel like so many people are so filled with rage right now politically, and I, I count myself among them. Um, but I remember going to a meditation class in my early 20s, and at that time I was enraged about Bush's war in Iraq. And the class was specifically about anger and how anger wasn't so great. And I remember arguing with the teacher and saying, but come on, don't you need anger for um, for political rage and for efficacy and, and to fuel one sense of activism? And he said, no, no, you don't. Why is that helpful? You'd say you can be angry, but you can do you can make your action and the anger stays over here. It's actually not that useful. And that was fascinating to me because all my life I had really thought of rage as the fuel for these social, um, the, these social activists, these social movements. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, a lot of times it is, I think, and, mm-hmm. you know, and for each of us, a lot of times it is. But um, there's something about that seeming paradox that's very important for this time. Like mm. people right after the election would say to me, you know, they were enraged. And Mm -hmm. six months later, people were saying, I can't bear my own mind anymore. Mm. You know, I can't bear looking at my thoughts because they're all enraged. And so Mm -hmm. the toll Mm. was becoming more apparent, Mm -hmm. you know, as time went on. And so it's finding that energy Mm -hmm. to say, I don't agree with this. I think this is wrong. People are being hurt. Let Mm -hmm. me help. Um, And at the same time, not to get lost, you know, in, in some kind of identification with that because... Uh, it's so destructive. And well, and if you're mentally dominated, that's one extra form of domination. Yeah, that's <laughs> There's true. There's so many other horrible forms it's right true. now. It's true. It's true. Yet one more. <laughs> I know, one more. So which came first for you, writing or meditation? Writing. Um, I, I've always written something or other since I was about five, mostly poetry and mm. short stories. And then when I met Paula Vogel, I became a playwright. And I think it was around that time I went to that class when I started meditating Mm -hmm. in my 20s. And what kind of meditation were you interested in? I was pretty um, ecumenical. I I kept trying um, (laughs) different kinds. And interestingly, the oldest boy was kind of a tipping point for me. Um, And... It's interesting. So I keep thinking about what you said about what the Dalai Lama said that mm-hmm. it's the artist's transformation yeah, that's the measure. It's yeah. amazing. And at the start of that play, so I started the play because I have a babysitter, Yang Zam, 
And she's the one who told me a story of friends in Boston who had had this actual experience of having a child identified as a tulku. And I thought, oh, my God, and how could you give your child away? And I was so intrigued. And then I did tons of research, sort of bundlefuls and suitcasefuls. And by the end of my research, I decided to to take refuge as, as a Tibetan Buddhist, <laughs> which mm-hmm. was not mm-hmm. what I expected, right, right. you know. But, you know, somebody like the Dalai Lama, I think, shows a... Um you know, uh, a kind of courage or, or lucidity, you know, because there he is in this situation and asked a certain question which made no sense to him. Mm-hmm. And instead of trying to fudge it, you know, uh-huh. he, he said, that makes no sense to me. Yeah. You know, I just don't get it. And it reminds me of, you know, a long time ago, like 1989 or 90, I was in a conference with him in India. And I asked him a question. I said, Your Holiness, what do you think about self-hatred? Mm-hmm. I said, what's that? I remember reading you know, about that. It's yeah. quite amazing. Yeah, it was amazing. That there's so much more self-hatred in the yeah, West. Yeah. I mean, that's not to deify any culture like Tibetan culture because certainly there are enough problems. But there's something about that rock-bottom belief about what you'll find if you look at the deepest level of yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, and is it something with capacity for love and mm-hmm. connection or is it some miserable, you know, mm-hmm. you know thing? And in terms of that notion of the artist being transformed by the art, I do, I remember telling my students at some point that there are certain plays you write in your life that teach you how you're going to live, that, that that get you through a chapter in your life that teach you something you didn't know about yourself. And I don't think it's every play, but I think there are sort of very particular plays in a playwright's career that mm-hmm. that teach you how to live. Mm-hmm. And others don't. This next clip is from episode 117 of the Met Hour, featuring Carla Goldstein. It originally aired February 18th of 2020. Carla is the president of Omega Institute, a holistic learning center offering innovative educational experiences that provide an integrated approach to personal and social change. She has 25 years' experience in public interest advocacy, contributing to city, state, and federal laws related to women's rights, poverty, public health, and social justice. In this clip, Carla and Sharon discuss the role that inner work has with creativity, art, and social transformation. Here's the clip. I mean, the way it's like, if I try to think of how meditation practice or awareness can help activism, how it can help inform activism, part of it is simple awareness. It's like, oh, you know, I didn't realize I was so afraid of this. And what's it like to kind of acknowledge the fear but go forward anyway? And I didn't realize how hard it was till I really paid attention to feel so alone in this endeavor, you know, can I find a community that would support my efforts? It seems that without that ever-growing awareness, it's it's a whole other kind of activity. Yeah, completely. And, you know, I think the more awareness we have, the more out of isolation we come, the more community we build, the more impactful our collective impact can Mm -hmm. be. Um, because not any one of us, it's hard to do anything by <laughs> by oneself. So I think that's really a, a good formula, the way that you 
connected the dots between practice and action. And I also think activism is such a, it comes in many forms, you know, it's really not only like protest or marching. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, how do you think about it? Well, I think about it in in several ways. One is what I was thinking of uh, in particular was this time I was getting prepared to teach this course in D.C. over, I think, four weeks. And I wanted people as part of signing up to volunteer somewhere. And then we were going to use the times we got together to really practice mindfulness and look at the various issues that were coming up in in people's minds. And I was really embarrassed because as people were signing up, they were, or wanting to sign up, they'd, they'd call, uh, in this case it was the National Cathedral, and they would say, well, I'd really like to sign up for this course, but I'm taking care of my elderly mother. I can't really volunteer on another place. Or, you know, I have a child who, who gets ill. I can't really, you know, and, and as people just describe their ordinary day-to-day lives, I thought they are serving, you know? Right. Like, why right. did I think it had to be like a special activity? And when I think of activism, I, I kind of think of that, you know, in so many ways in which we work to make a difference or we do some activity to try to make a difference. And I'd also say, because this comes up a lot in the in the book that I've just written, Not Yet Out, which is really art is a form of activism in my mind and creativity is a form of activism in my mind. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think art can be some of the most powerful form of activism because it takes us beyond words and into symbols and songs images, things that really can move the heart and change your perspective on something. Somebody was telling me they just saw an art exhibit on the silence of art, how art, art mm-hmm. is, you know, when it's visual art, it's quiet, and yet it's so loud, <laughs> or it can be mm-hmm. so loud in its, in its silence. I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting. And, you know, one of the ways that we think about it, and Sharon, you and I have taught at Omega on this framework, which is looking at things from a personal, relational, and global perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, so what is it that's going on for an individual at any time, and what kind of self-care might they need, or um, how to heal the self so that what you're bringing out into the world is not reflecting and projecting the woundedness that any one of us has. Mm-hmm. And that's a form of activism, like healing yourself. Because that is going to improve what you can bring in to others. And then relational, like what are our relationships? What is the context in which we are in relationship with each other? And how do we be really mindful of that? So when we are coming towards somebody, we're not doing it in a way that is diminishing their humanity. And what does that mean? How do we hold those relationships in a steady way? And that's a form of activism, not powering over somebody else or, you know, really coming to somebody with compassion, supporting somebody's dream or hope. And then looking at global, and when we say global, we mean systems issues because not everything Mm -hmm. needs to be international. Like that's kind of how we think about when you hear the word global. But Really, we live in this interconnected world, and every day the systems that impact all of us are so interconnected around the world. 
our time clocks, our technology, our means of production, the computer that we have the phone, you and I, you know, we're talking on a phone and we're creating a podcast and it's going to be projected over <laughs> these, mm-hmm. these wires. So these are all systems issues and our systems, structural issues can really keep us all locked in a certain place. So how do we, how do we evolve our systems and structures? What do we do with structural racism? What do we do with uh, our consumer structures that are devastating our natural resources and polluting the very source of life for humans and all animals. These are systems issues that need to be addressed and changed. And so there's a and there's an interplay between all of these three levels of our our being, our personal self, our relationships and systems and structures. And so how can we develop practices and insight and awareness of each of those levels and their interplay? Our next clip is from episode 132 of the Meta Hour, featuring Diego Perez, widely known by his pen name, Young Pueblo. It originally aired September 7th of 2020. Diego is a meditator, writer, and speaker. His practice of Vipassana meditation, as taught by S.N. Goenka, has given him a deeper understanding of liberation and inspires him to reach hundreds of thousands of people online every month through his writing. He's the author of several books, including Clarity and Connection, which was just released in April of 2021. In this clip, Diego speaks with Sharon about connecting the sacred to the creative. Take a listen. I can remember many years ago, going to the Soviet Union to teach. And at first it was still the Soviet Union. We, we kept going, Joseph Goldstein and I, after it was Russia, you know. But when it was the Soviet Union, we'd watch people getting married and, and just this urge toward touching the sacred somewhere. So a very common place to go would be like a poet's grave mm. and to pay respect there. And I thought, wow, you know, like what an amazing thing, you know, a world where the sacred was not really honored in a way in terms of the collective culture and the the government edicts, you know, but but there was something in people. And where did they go? They went to poets' graves, and uh, which were really like sacred sites. And It's so interesting because one thing that I keep observing over and over is that when the mind is so dense with conditioning, right, and the conditioning is only it keeps multiplying and you keep reacting and adding to that density. When you reverse that process and you actually start pulling back all those layers and unbinding all of these knots in the mind, what you get is such a natural emergence of creativity that just that kind of comes out of nowhere and doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be an artist, but there's a new creativity that you can use to look at old problems in your life and come up with new solutions. And mm-hmm. I love that the, you're connecting the sacred to the creative because there are moments when, and I've heard this from so many writers, like musicians, poets, writers, but like some of the best things come when you produce them very quickly and you don't know where they're coming from, but they're just coming through you. And I noticed that process happening in myself sometimes, especially in the beginning when I started writing, because I never considered myself a writer. I honestly thought I was going to be a banker because, you know, I grew up poor that I was like, I got to make money for my family. But then when I started meditating after I did, I think I was after the third 
course, like I started writing real poems and I was like, where is this coming from? And it was just because my mind was finally getting cleaned up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our final clip is from episode 95 of the Meta Hour featuring Gary Gack. It originally aired April 1st of 2019. Gary has been meditating and writing for nearly 60 years and is lay ordained in Thich Nhat Hanh's Plum Village community of engaged Buddhism. He's the author of the best-selling book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Buddhism, and has been published in numerous magazines and anthologies. His most recent book, Pause, Breathe, Smile, was released in September of 2019. In this clip, Gary shares his thoughts about writing and artistry, as a medium for social change. Here's the clip. So I am, as you know, uh, working on a book, and uh, yeah. it's about mindfulness, loving kindness, and social change or social action. And I realized that one of the assumptions that I and many people were making were that it was a very circumscribed definition of social change. And at one point, I realized my own limitation, mm-hmm. and I, I was in conversation with someone, and I said, what about art, you know? Yeah. What about really opening this definition? Because art may be uh, incredibly disruptive and onward-leading and pointing us to uh-huh. inspiration, inspiring us to action. So uh-huh. I'd love to talk to you about that. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and consciousness-changing. And consciousness changing. And how do we change the so-called world and people if we can't change their consciousness? Mm-hmm. And if we can change consciousness, it seems like everything else would seem to follow. Although, the, uh, you know, the, the, you read the political philosophers and some say, no, 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 you have to change the material world first. Mm-hmm. But even they will agree, you know, that there's a very important role that we have where art seems to be more than just please pass the salt. Mm-hmm. Although please pass the salt is a kind of an art too, you know, mm-hmm. it's direct and it goes right to the source. But to say something in a way that, um, you know, lifts one out of oneself so that one empathizes with the uh, the person saying it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the reader and there's the writer, and that implies a communion already of a social, of a social bond. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'll give you feedback just from my own sense of reading your mm-hmm. recent book, mm-hmm. Real Love, which I love. Thank and you. how it uses, yeah, it uses these three models of uh, love in oneself and love for another and love in mm-hmm. world. And I think art is like that. You know, at some level, um, I can keep a journal and nobody may ever see it. Mm-hmm. But I could write, you know, all kinds of things. And yet that is can change my way of seeing and viewing. And to consider it as as being a social medium, whether it's dance or painting or writing, that someone else is going to witness it, someone else is going to commune with it. Mm-hmm. That implies a way of connecting with other people and communicating and communing with other people 
that can be quite different than the usual, you know, like poetry is outside the realm of uh, capitalism. Mm-hmm. It exists outside of the cash nexus. Mm-hmm. I mean, you may get a grant, but it's kind of a non-paying <laughs> profession, uh-huh. you know. And in that sense, art is also, and then also I think of art as being just the nature of reality. More and more I think of it as, the, as Mother Earth, that Mother Earth is this great artist. Oh, wow, yeah. You know, that's just created, you know, not just you and me, but everything that we know of practically is all a product of this great artist, Mother Earth, and the whole universe. That the universe is in a creative state, and that when I'm creative, when I'm being artistic, it's just really kind of following, you know, my true nature and allows me to recognize all, you know, everyone's my brother, everyone's my sister, that I don't really own the art. It becomes its own. (laughs) Mm -hmm. To go back to what I said at the first thing about, you know, my uh, uh, awakening, at the same time that I came to Buddhism, or awakening way of living, Mm -hmm. I also started writing. Mm-hmm. I wrote my first poem when I was 10. Wow. And, well, I mean, it's just, for me, it's just, it's, they've always been kind of inseparable. Mm-hmm. So I, I respect your question just to the utmost, because for me, it very much confirms what it is that I'm about as a career as a human being who writes and practices and tries not to see them as separate things. Thanks so much for listening. The paperback edition of Real Change is now available wherever books are sold. If you'd like to continue your exploration of the book, Sharon is hosting an eight-day Real Change Challenge online from December 6 to 13, 2021. This in-depth program features a daily lesson, meditation, call to action, and more. Register now at SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.